This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. So I have just one piece of advice for anyone who's listening to my voice. I would almost on bended knee make this suggestion, which will also come as a request. When you think about politics in our country and your relationship to it, spend more time focusing not on your level of satisfaction or dissatisfaction, but proportionally more time on the quality of your participation. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. Over the last two years, we've spent a lot of time discussing the big lie that the 2020 election was stolen and the Trump team's plan to throw out the will of the American people and retain power. As we prepare for next week's midterm elections, I wanted to think about the important truths from the 2020 election that have flown under the radar, the current threats to our democratic system, the way the lies about 2020 are shaping our current perceptions of the safety and security of our election, and what our government and citizens can do to restore faith in our election system. I'm excited to discuss this and a whole lot more with the authors of The Big Truth, Upholding Democracy in the Age of the Big Lie. Returning to politicology, David Becker. David is the executive director and founder of the Center for Election Innovation and Research, CBS News contributor, and he was a senior trial attorney at the Department of Justice in their Civil Rights Division. David, it's great to see you again. Great to see you again too, Ron. And CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent Major Garrett. Major has over 30 years of experience in journalism. He's covered Congress for two major magazines, has been White House correspondent for three television networks, and he is also the host of The Takeout Podcast. Welcome, Major, to Politicology. It is great to be with you, Ron. Thank you for having us. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Why don't we begin with a little bit of background, um, set the stage, if you would, uh, and maybe you can tag team this. I'm not sure mm -hmm. who, who best to direct you, but what made you decide you needed to write the book now? So this was obviously a decision we came to about a year and a half ago. And the original idea behind this book was a very modest love letter to election workers and election administrators. Why did we think that was necessary? Because, again, setting aside whether you're pleased or displeased with the outcome of the 2020 election, the election itself was, and this is not a challengeable assertion, the greatest achievement of democratic process in the history of the United States of America. Full stop. Largest turnout, most diverse electorate, under the most trying circumstances since the Civil War. And we did it. We did it in ways that we like as Americans to think are distinctly American. They may not be, but we like to think they are. What are those things? Innovation, collaboration, 
cooperation, a hard deadline that won't move and that we won't ask that it be moved, and that we create solutions on the fly with no roadmap for the betterment of all. Ron, as I grew up in this country, that was America to me. And I am going to be wistful about that because it's important. We did this thing on behalf of all of us. David and I wanted to write, initially, a love letter to those Americans who made it happen. And I'll let David pick it up from here about how the project became more ambitious after yeah. that original inspiration. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. We, um, I'd gotten to know Major during my time contributing to CBS News. And, um, uh, you know, it, it's exactly that dichotomy, dichotomy that uh, Major is talking about, that we achieved this great success and yet election officials were receiving all of this abuse and threats as a result. And then as we began to kind of conceptualize the book further, we started getting more and more revelations how this wasn't just some kind of random riot that occurred and got out of control on January 6th, that it was actually part of a pretty comprehensive plan to corrupt the federal government and state governments to um, overturn the will of the people, in, in essence, an attempted coup. And as more and more revelations came out, I think thanks mostly to the work of the January 6th Select Committee in the House, we realized this was a bigger story, um, that this was something that showed a, a much greater rot at the core of our democracy than we thought was there, that this wasn't going to go away with the Trump loss. This was going to continue and perhaps grow. And we're actually seeing that right now, obviously, as we lead into 2022. So um, Major likes to say this, and it's exactly right. We, we, didn't, we didn't write this book because we wanted to. We wrote this book because we felt we had to. You open the book with the line, uh, I quote, Americans talk a lot about civil war. You go on to write that civil strife isn't civil war and that we have not dissolved the bonds of our union yet. But you make it clear that you're seeing some frightful trends. Can you set the stakes for us? Uh, how, how dangerous of a moment do you think we are in as we head to the midterms? So it's dangerous in this sense. If you want to have a policy disagreement about inflation or crime or the proper rate of Obamacare subsidies or where an infrastructure project should or shouldn't go or what's equality or equity in this country, you have to do that through the conference of authority. What is the means by which we confer authority? The means by which we peaceably confer authority, let me emphasize peaceably confer authority is through elections. If we reach a stage in this country where the only acceptable election result is if my side wins and if my side loses, it is therefore obviously unacceptable and fraudulent, then we eliminate the ability to peaceably confer authority. So all these other things disappear. And only Anarchy, disruption, chaos, and violence ensue. There are, there are no other human options. We live in a constitutional republic that has a democratic process. The way that that has advanced and evolved and improved in terms of access, the application of justice for those originally denied when this country was founded, arose from this conference of authority. So the danger is, right now, one legacy political party 
is playing a game, a dangerous, dangerous game with the underlying conference of that authority. And as we argue in the book, don't kid yourself. If election denialism just becomes another tactical arrow in the political quiver, everyone will use it, everyone will deny elections, and the conference of authority will disappear. Yeah, I, I'd just add to that the um, every democracy, particularly ours, the world's oldest continuing democracy, um, relies upon two things, a way to um, process and determine who has authority as under, under the consent of the governed. We actually do that really well right now. Our elections are really good. They're as good as they've ever been, which is not to say they won't improve further as we as we go further. Um, and the other is the rule of law, that when we have disputes that need urgent resolution, we can go to the courts and the courts will resolve them. We might not like the way the courts always resolve them, but we will let that be the final word. <clears throat> and um, what we're seeing is attacks on both these things by election deniers. Um, and I think sometimes we, we, we talk a lot in the book about why elections are so secure and why those attacks are fraudulent. Um, but we also talk a bit about the rule of law and how important the rule of law is in this and that we as a culture have to accept the rule of law because once you start delegitimizing the rule of law as well, the next natural impulse is violence. And we are seeing many not only um, consider that as an option after the rule of law is exhausted, but almost enthusiastically do so. Um, and, uh, I don't know that we've seen this certainly in modern American history to this degree. You know, I want to spend, um, I want to spend a good chunk of time talking about the, the, the mindset that you talk about in the book of the Trump voter and election denier. Before we do though, um, in the first section of the book, you lay out a story of three Januaries, how events in 2023 could lead to a bloody civil war, how events in 2017 could have unfolded differently. and um, how we learned the full extent of the attack on the Capitol earlier this year. Why did you decide to begin by showing these different scenarios? Because we wanted the book to be something unexpected in this space. We came to the conclusion that if we were to write a book about the 2020 election, people would assume one of two things. It was a Trump book. It's not, not principally or that it was a very arid recitation of election procedures. We recite the important strengths of our election procedures. We hope they're not arid in their description and their specificity. But we wanted to give people a way to get into this topic that would surprise them. And in our conversations, David and I said, you know, um, there are already signs out there of states and political figures within states using language of separation. There are some states that are boycotting other states over policy disagreements already. After the Dobbs decision, there was even more of that talk about states looking unrecognizable to one another in terms of their approach to this one particular issue, abortion. Then we saw the movement of migrants from one border state to other states, which struck us as a different kind of this of the syndrome. And so we wanted to write a chapter that would suggest that another civil war in this country, and the conversation about that is much looser now 
than I think people understand, and we warn people about the looseness of that very terminology. Talking loosely about the Civil War makes it seem less scary than it actually would be. And we don't actually describe a deeply bloody Civil War. We describe a Civil War that is more like a divorce, a great procedural cleaving, where states separate themselves self-righteously and procedurally from one another, both in defense of their idea and concept of what democracy is. So it's a self-justifying separation, but a separation nonetheless, and a deepening of alienation among states, and a dissolution of what we have always assumed or hoped would be perpetual, the union. Yeah, I'll just say, I mean, the the construct of the three Januaries, we talk about January 2023, January 2017, both hypotheticals, and then January 2022, which is actually when a lot of these revelations were coming out right. about the conspiracy to corrupt the federal government and state governments. And and um, and over overarching above all of them is really January 2021. Mm-hmm. And the fact that um, Major and I and most Americans, I think, were horrified by what we saw in January 2021. And so we wanted to play these out as hypotheticals. These are not predictions. These are possible but not inevitable outcomes. January 2023, um, as Major indicated, kind of hypothesizes a breakdown based on election results and perhaps some um, uh, actions driven by uh, extremists. Um, January 2017 was really written with an eye towards um, people who may have voted for Trump. It was imagining what would have happened if uh, then, sec- you know, candidate Clinton had tried to corrupt the federal government through the Obama administration close to the way pres- we know President Trump now did. And um, uh, to make people understand that this would not have been okay. If, if, you're, if you're a Republican and you thought that what the Trump administration did in November and December and January of 2021 was okay. Could you have also lived with the Obama administration doing the same thing in 2016 and early 2017? I would hope the answer is no. Um, and, and so we, we were really trying to, you know, bring voters who might disagree into the book to then read the later sections. And we admit we've heard from some people that the, the first couple chapters are a little bit scary, but hopefully the rest of the book is a little more inspiring and, and optimistic. Yeah, I mean, I think a little bit of fear is effective. If you're we, trying we, to- we thought it would be because we didn't want to wade into this topic and say, relax. Yeah. It's not a time to relax. That's right, yeah. It's time to be vigilant. It's a time to be measured. And it's a time to rally the best of America in furtherance of the best of America. Okay, this is a great setup to the, the, the one of the most pernicious problems, I think. We spent a, t- a lot of time on this podcast talking about it, um, is that Democrats and Republicans both think there's a problem with how our democracy is functioning. They're just seeing completely different problems and completely different solutions. Um, and, and in that way, the word democracy, small d democracy, has been sort of rendered meaningless in a lot of those conversations. Uh, and if you don't know what it means anymore, if it's now, you know, if it's impossible to code switch in and out of that word to uh, to have a useful conversation with someone about what it stands for and all of the, the machinery underneath that word, 
um, it poses a massive challenge to rallying the best of America, to in furtherance of the best of America, well put. So I think the way that you laid out the mindset of Trump loyalists uh, and election deniers was really helpful. Can you um, walk us through their perception of the breakdown of norms? So as background, I covered the 2015-2016 battle for the Republican nomination for 15 to a half, 16 months on the road. So I have under my belt more than 100 Trump rallies, about 80 in the 2016 campaign, about 20 as president of the United States. So I've, I've, I've lived journalistically in this world, and in almost every one of those rallies, when I had the opportunity, which was many times, I spoke to Trump supporters. As we write in the book, the vast majority of the 74 million or so Americans who voted for President Trump in 2020 are not insurrectionists. They're not violent. They love this country. They want the best for it. They chose a candidate they firmly believed in and are very disappointed he lost. Many of them have been manipulated by the former president into believing that was a fraudulent election when it wasn't. And some of them hold on to that as a proxy for the larger Trump movement itself. Meaning if you don't believe the big lie, you are a disloyal Trump supporter. And the idea of being a disloyal Trump supporter goes much deeper than Trump himself. It goes to a larger sense of identity and your particular role in this particularly stressful time in America in its story. And identity politics is not just the province of the left. Identity politics is now almost universal in our country in that how we think about politics is so much less rooted in where it started when I first observed it as a national political reporter in 1990, which was party, ideology, candidate, and these sort of institutional factors that were not nearly as psychological as what's my identity? Where do I live? What is my sense of self? And how does that sense of self translate into my political preferences and belonging? And when you wrap them so tightly, they become intermeshed psychologically. And I have learned one thing covering national politics since 1990. The more psychological politics becomes, the more dangerous and volatile it becomes. And so for those who either notionally attach themselves to the big lie or fundamentally believe it, part of that is wrapped up in that sense of identity. Part of it is a reflection that the media is always out to get Trump, that the Russia investigation was a fraud. If not a fraud, it was started in illegitimate ways. The media never pays enough attention to Hunter Biden. There are all these sets of grievances that are right front and center and that can be immediately called upon. As if in the terminology, when we were first all buying laptop computers, random access memory, they're right there. You call them up instantly and that's a justifying set of facts that lead you to say, well, I'm not going to get off this because of all these other things that tick me off. One last component part of that is it's also wrapped up in COVID. It's wrapped up in adaptations that grew out of the pandemic that many Trump supporters thought were overzealous, trampled on their rights. And if any voting change in a jurisdiction or a state where the election outcome wasn't favorable or a reflection of that, that deepens that sense 
of separation and hostility. I hope in the book it's clear that we have sympathy and empathy for those who, who may have preferred a different candidate than those who won. I mean, find me someone who hasn't experienced some electoral disappointment in the last decade. That's extremely normal. Um, but we also get asked the question a lot, is, is Trump the, the, a symptom or is he the cause of this disease? And uh, my answer is always, I, I don't think it matters anymore. I think that the fact is that if Trump were to disappear magically, and I don't expect that to happen, but if he were to disappear magically, the problems that we see are largely still going to be in place. The damage that's been done to our democracy is very severe. And it's going to, by the way, it's not going to be fixed in one election cycle. It's not going to be fixed in two election cycles. It's going to take some time to fix. I wanted to ask you, as we're talking about the mindset of, of, uh, of election deniers, uh, Major just walked through, you know, a list of the go-to grievances that are available um, sort of on demand. What do you do with the legitimacy of some of the grievances that are not election related, right? What do you do with, um, are, first of all, is there legitimacy to some of the grievances? And do you think that, um, that the way the media talks about people with these grievances contributes to sort of a digging in to the big lie, to that identity, those psychological factors? Do you think that they, do they have some things right? Is the is the question, and are they getting fair play, but or, or not because of the election denialism? So, if you believe there were systematic problems with the way the Steele dossier was used by the FBI and used to reinforce foreign intelligence security agency wiretaps of Americans, you'd be right. Don't don't rely don't rely on me for that. You don't need to go to Fox News. You don't need to go, just read the IG report. The inspector general came to that conclusion, said protocols were not adhered to properly. Was that a prosecutable crime? Well, there's been a special attorney assigned to this who has a pretty bleak track record in terms of criminally prosecuting things related to this. But those cases were made. They were heard by a jury and verdicts were rendered which meant that there was something worthy of getting in court for court review. That's a legitimate grievance. Does that excuse or entitle you to smear and slander an election? No, it doesn't. They are distinguished and distinguishable sets of facts. Do you think Hunter Biden's story would have changed the election? You can think that. Go ahead. And you can think the social media companies did something to suppress it. Okay. That is a grievance. What I would also say in that space is there is nothing that Twitter did that prevented anyone from passing that story along on Facebook. And it was passed along readily. Trust me, as someone who's a member in good standing of a number of legacy media companies, I understand our diminishing clout and centrality in the American conversation. We are fractionally as important in terms of disseminating and having an echo effect of that dissemination of news than we used to be, fractionally. There are so many other means by which you can obtain and pass along and learn about information. But you can say, hey, someone put the thumb on the scale on the Hunter Biden story. Does that mean your local election official screwed you in the election. No, it doesn't. And they are distinguished 
and distinguishable facts of American life. That's exactly right. And they're, they're, there's opposite sides of this coin. You know, Democrats, one of the reasons we talked about 2016 and 2017, Democrats might have legitimate grievances about the FBI revelations shortly before the election. Um, you know, was that handled properly? Did it have an effect on the election? There's legitimate reason to, to question that. Could it have an effect, had an effect on voters? Possibly. But what we knew in 2016 was even as true, if not even more so in 2020, which is that the voters who went to the polling places intending to cast their ballot for a certain candidate had those ballots counted accurately. Now, we can disagree as to whether or not they were misled or mistaken or their values are a little bit different than ours. That's normal. What's not normal is to say the machinery was corrupted. My neighbors who are working at the polling place are part of a vast global conspiracy. That's not normal. And worse, it's false. So you write about how in 2016, Trump made this assertion that he really won the popular vote, but that his victory, I'm putting that in air quotes, was erased by three to four million votes cast by illegal aliens, again in air quotes. So this didn't happen. We know it didn't happen. Uh, But as you put it, the idea of fraud afoot was injected into the psyche of Trump loyalists. The rest of us moved on. They did not. Um, I spoke with my friend, uh, Scott McFarlane, also of CBS News, uh, your colleague, about his uh, coverage of the January 6th attack and the prosecutors a couple of we- prosecutions a couple of weeks ago. Um, one of the things he noted was that he gets a lot of feedback from people, non-Trump voters, uh, not election deniers, that they're not interested in continuing to hear about January 6th. Um, and there's now a fervor about the election denial that I think is particularly troubling. You write, Trump supporters, by all accounts, have come to care more about election denialism than almost any other issue. And so I wonder if both of you could talk a little bit about, um, first of all, helping us understand the potential ramifications if too many people do move on again. Um, But also, how have you seen the election denialism continue growing and evolving, sort of mutating well after the 2020 election. How do, we, how do you want to tackle that? Yeah. I, I think one of the things we talk about a bit in the book is that the incentive structure is out of whack right now. And people who are spreading lies are getting rich and they're gaining political power through the spreading of those lies. There are cracks in that in places like Georgia and other places, but that's largely been the case. And so far they have not been held to account. And the key words there are so far. Yeah. Um, Talk about those incentives. Yeah. So right now, uh, by all accounts, there was a recent report on this. Donald Trump himself has raised about a half a billion dollars in, in this 725 plus days since the uh, November election, November 2020 election. Um, grifters surrounding him have raised tens of millions of dollars. Um, Sidney Powell famously has raised, uh, and this is a year ago, it was estimated she'd raised about $20 million. She's probably raised much more since then. And then we all celebrated when a court held her accountable and um, sanctioned her $200,000. Well, that's still a pretty good profit margin. Um, But we can get to them by holding them accountable for their criminal acts. We're seeing investigations at the Justice Department in Fulton County, Georgia. There are investigations elsewhere um, through civil liability, lawsuits being filed against people who have defamed uh, participants in the elections process, whether it be the pillow guy or Fox news or others. We've seen law licenses suspended and others are currently under review. Those are the kinds of things we need to see more of. 
because that's going to ultimately be the only thing that could possibly reset the incentive structure. Now, even that might not work on some. It doesn't seem to be working on Steve Bannon, for instance. But um, we need to try at least because right now we can hope that the political environment fixes this, but ultimately we don't have a lot of control over that. And while some of the election deniers are going to lose in this election cycle, it's highly likely that some of them are going to win. Let's uh, dig down just ever so briefly on incentive structures. So if you're in a Republican primary, you will do what every campaign strategy would do. You would try to assess the likely turnout model. And there's a pretty typical way that campaigns do this on both sides. They assign a probability rating to likely turnout on a scale of four. Four, four is very high, almost guaranteed to show up. Three, four, nearly as high. Two, four. So most campaigns build their strategic outreach to the two, four, three, four, four, four voters in a primary. Election denialism motivates zero, four, and one, four voters, meaning voters who almost never show up in a primary. What does that tell a Republican? Quite directly, it tells them if you don't say this, there will be an unpredictable amount of voters who will come after you and possibly deny you a chance at victory in that primary. That unpredictable X factor, as we have seen play out in primary after primary after primary, is one they are not willing to argue against, not willing to stand up against, not willing to say, you know what? You're on a cliff. We need to walk ourselves back from the cliff. Nope. They get right out on the cliff because that 0-4 propensity voter, that 1-4 propensity voter is often in their own strategic mindset, the difference between guaranteed victory and possible defeat. And you ask any politician, what do you want? They want guaranteed victory, not possible defeat. And that has become within the primary conversation a given. And things that are givens are accepted unless you argue against them. And if you've already decided not to argue against them, then guess what? They exist and they deepen, which is what we've seen in the last year and a half. Now, David and I have this ongoing conversation whenever we get this question, does that work in a general election? Well, we're going to find out. It's going to work less well in other general elections than others. But at the primary level, it's basically baked into the syndrome of Republican candidacies and campaigns. We saw play out in many, many jurisdictions across this country that if you denied it and you were unknown, you became better known. If you were less well-funded, you became better funded. And there was a chance you could attract former President Trump's endorsement, which in a primary context is very deeply meaningful. And there was a recent clip from a story on Fox about Blake Masters in Arizona in which a phone call from the former president basically says, as a tactical matter, if you don't go hard on denialism, you will lose the base. That is an entirely tactical approach. It has nothing to do with any provable fact. Zero. It is purely tactical. That pulled, if it needed to be pulled, the veil back on what this is actually about. And one thing I think we can say for sure, regardless of what the outcome will be in coming weeks, is that it led to the Republican Party nominating candidates that were weaker 
than others who are running with, with possibly the exception of some of the races in Georgia. Georgia somehow managed to avoid this, which is um, really remarkable and perhaps a lesson for us. But um, there are places that given the political dynamics, you would expect Republicans to be leading by large margins and they're caught in toss-up races. And that's at least in part due to the fact that um, the candidates that came through the nominating process, whatever that was, were um, were more extreme and more prone to the big lie. And we saw that, by the way, in conventions too. There were there were two really well-established, very um, very competent Republican secretaries of state, one in Indiana, one in South Dakota, who were both defeated at their nominating conventions. They had served for four years. They knew what they were doing. They were doing a good job. And now their own party has rejected them. Um, uh, they were by no means, um, you know, Biden supporters or liberals, um, but they, uh, they're no longer going to be serving next year as their secretaries of state. I think one important takeaway for listeners is you, you may be inclined to view Republican leadership as being, um, craven, spineless, et cetera, like fill in the blank of all the words that, uh, come to mind for not pushing back harder against election denialism. And you'd be right in most cases, you'd be right. But I think the thing both of you are, are explaining that really needs driving home is that it's, crea- it's altered the physics of campaign strategy. Election denialism has, has sort of fundamentally altered the physics of campaign strategy. And what you're seeing from Republican leaders is actually rational. It's, it, it, it may be craven, it may be spineless, level. right? But at a certain level, if your pursuit, if your aim is to win um, and, and you had no sort of moral, uh, uh, you know, you had, you had no misgivings, right, about the consequences, this is what you would be doing. I find this particular part of the conversation uh, darkly humorous in this sense. So there's a lot of conversation around this space about origins of our country, the founders, constitutional republic. So if you read the Federalist Papers, it is a guide to the venality of human nature, the very real hazards of demagogues, and the potential dangers of pure democracy with no intervening institutional mechanisms by which to soften its fanged and sometimes incoherent or diabolical pursuits. And the argument you will get from Republicans is, hey, I can't do anything about this. My people believe it. And in a democratic society, I'm supposed to follow what they believe, which is a supine approach to pure democracy, that which the founders of this country, whom they proclaim so much allegiance and fealty to, warn about in explicit terms. Fits of passion. Yes. So you live in this completely illogical, self-justifying world of pure democracy because, hey, my people believe it. I have no choice. A, you have a choice. B, that they believe it may be true, but you can, and I would argue, in furtherance of this great country, have an obligation to engage on. 
Yeah, I'm glad Major brought up the Federalist Papers because to I some mean, degree, so am I. <laughs> it, was, it, it was really, I mean, it, very consciously a, an yeah. inspiration for us both as we were conceiving of the book. And you read portions of the Federalist Papers and you're like, holy cow, how did, how did these guys predict so Trump? prescient? I mean, they literally predicted Trump. You, I mean, more than 200 years before this. It's remarkable. And, um, and one of the questions that you a- asked about this being rational behavior, um, at its best, it's rational only in the very, very short term. Because election denial, and Major made, made a point of this earlier, election denial is a genie that once you let that out of the bottle, it's very, very difficult to put back in. And it's very, very difficult to confine to a particular time or particular, a particular party. Um, this is, this is the kind of thing that can undo a democracy, even one as well established as we have. We look back, we looked back, um, at the revelations that were coming out about November, December, 2020 and January, 2021. And it was remarkable as we were learning about this, that as much as we rely upon the constitution and we uphold its principles, as much as we rely upon institutions and granite structures around Washington, DC, that ultimately democracy is an informal agreement amongst its citizens that we only can do what we all kind of agree we're going to do. There have been Supreme Court decisions that required the National Guard to be called out with weapons to enforce because states just weren't going to accept them. And we are seeing and very troubled by a, a breakdown in that agreement that um, no more are winners, winners, and losers, losers. The campaign goes on, not just up to and including the election, but long past it, that no one ever has legitimate authority if we don't agree with them. And by the way, this is something that can infect the entire political spectrum. And this goes back to the question you asked a while ago about definitions of democracy. Look, let's get uncomfortable for just a second um, for some in the audience. If you believe that the way that the House of Representatives is voted on and redistricted is fundamentally illegitimate and therefore unworthy of authority, that's a problem. If you believe the United States Senate is constructed in a way that perpetually denies minority rights, even though it's designed to protect minority rights, but if you believe its very legitimacy doesn't exist, if you believe a Supreme Court decision, like in the case of Dobbs, means the court by itself forever is illegitimate, and you use that terminology, you're part of the problem. You're not part of the solution. And I'm not saying that there are times when the House popular vote doesn't reflect the representational allocation. It doesn't. That is an issue. Is it a structural defect that completely obliterates all that came before it? I would argue no. But I would also say use your language carefully. And if you believe the Senate and the filibuster is racist in origin and construct and application, be careful of your language about legitimacy because others will hear that and define their own legitimacy. And if we have atomized definitions of democracy, we will continue to pull each other apart. So well said. Um, while, while we're uncomfortable, <laughs> while we're uncomfortable and, um, uh, you know, our, our listeners have heard me say this before, but, 
I'd love to hear both of your thoughts on Democrats propping up election deniers in primaries, Republican primaries, uh, in an attempt to win those races in the general election. Um, because the first time I broached that subject, we got a lot of angry emails. Mm-hmm. Um, because they were coming from a place of, well, we have to win and we have to do whatever it takes to win and we have to fight like Republicans fight. And um, how would you put it to someone who's sort of lost the plot on that yeah. front? I, I, think, I think first we have to recognize the opposing party trying to ensure that the weakest candidate came out of the other party's primary is an old tried and true tactic. Right. And that's fine. They might have personal issues. They might be less telegenic. They might have some extreme policy positions on things. They might have less money. Those were all, I think, that, that's standard in politics. I think there's an appetite for that. You know, um, you don't feel like it, but it's certainly not a, 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 an affront to American democracy. But what Major and I are saying in this book is that democracy is different, that the support for the idea that this is the way we resolve those, those disputes, that if we undermine the way we resolve those disputes, we have nowhere else to go. And if we support candidates who, um, who we think are weaker, but, um, and when I say we here, I'm talking about generally, yeah. I'm not talking about Democrats. Um, when anyone supports a candidate in the other party they think is weaker, who happens to think we should basically reduce or eliminate democracy, we are playing with fire um, because the other side's going to do that too. And also, do we need to be reminded that they can win? I mean, this has happened. This has happened in all of our recent history. Um, you can think that you've got it in the bag and you can lose an election. And then what do you have? I mean, there are states right now that are almost certainly going to elect election deniers into positions of power. And the question I keep getting from the media is, what does that mean for the next election? And it's a really complicated, really difficult question to answer, but it's not good. And I think this is, you know, this kind of playing with fire on these fundamental, foundational aspects of our democracy, um, I think are just very dangerous. And I'm sure part of the email conversation you got was, hey, we didn't create this problem. Yeah, of course. What do you get off telling us tactically what we should do about a problem we didn't create and a problem we don't presently have? And by the way, Republicans are the one who voted for them. Right. So. We don't have someone in our on our side, I imagine the emails went, <laughs> who Republicans could fund that is going around denying the election, denying that Biden won. We don't have that problem. We didn't create these set of facts, so step off. Who do you think you are? I get all that. I hear all that. Let me use uh, uh, a billiards metaphor. Was it you who emailed me? <laughs> <laughs> um, let me use a billiards metaphor. Um, it's always really cool to get a double bank shot. But if you lose the match, who cares about the double bank shot? Now, if you bet on a double bank shot and you got an extra beer on that one shot, okay, I can hear that. But the simple truth is in politics, Resources are finite, and I always believe for a candidate, for a party, at the county level, state level, or national level, 
doing your business better, more persuasively, more tactically, robustly in terms of voter contact, voter motivation, voter persuasion is the best place to be. And it's a double bank shot to meddle in the other side's sphere. But ultimately, it deprives you of resources, it takes your eye off the ball, and it risks losing the bigger game. Okay, let's talk about the big truth. What is it? As we write in the book, (laughs) there are thousands and thousands of small truths that make up the big truth. And uh, I wrote that line. I'm very proud of it because it's fundamentally what we want to try to get across. Elections are localized, decentralized, and a minor miracle in our country. And I thought a lot about this. I did a great amount of reading so we could be forthright on this point. The Civil War was a structural defect of our country that 20 years of attempts to legislatively compromise before the Civil War found insufficient. We could not expand the territorial definitions of America and reconcile slavery. We tried for 20 years. Some of the best legislative minds and political figures in our country leaned in on that for 20 years, and we couldn't do it. It was a structural defect that only war could resolve. The next time of greatest discord when the, it was common for brilliant writers and observers of the American experiment to say we have never been so divided as when we were fighting a civil war was when? Vietnam. What was the central issue? The prosecution of a war in a faraway place in which the government perpetually said one thing and the facts on the ground over time appeared to be different. There was only one way to structurally resolve that thing that set parent against child, family against family, neighborhood against neighborhood, as the Vietnam era did demonstrably in the war. We now have this division over something that has no inherent structural flaw. We don't have the underlying problem that we had in the Civil War or Vietnam. We only have a psychic problem, a mindset problem, an information problem, an information acceptance problem, which feels to me like the biggest truth of all. This is not as hard as we are making it. It is nowhere near as hard as the Vietnam War or the Civil War or slavery. Not even close. We have no structural defect. We only have a disagreement about it. But any honest evaluation of what we're arguing about in quotes isn't worth arguing about. Yeah. I mean, we, you know, it's like if you ask the country, what color is the sky and half say blue and the other side says 12. Um, I mean, we've, we've got this perception problem, which in some ways is easier. And in some ways is so much more difficult to get our, our hands around, but here is the big truth. And I think what the election deniers would, deniers would like is for us to play an endless game of whack-a-mole against their made-up theories, right? The dead Venezuelan dictator, the the European server and Italian satellite, the bamboo ballots, the suitcase of ballots, all of these things have been debunked and they pop up again and have to be debunked again. But there's an actual positive story and Major alluded to it about the 2020 election. It was the most secure, transparent, and verified election in American history. Ron, you and I have talked about this before. You know, this. if you don't believe me, believe 
Trump's own Department of Homeland Security, Trump's own Department of Justice and Attorney General, Trump's own FBI, Trump's own Department of Defense, heck, Trump's own campaign advisors, Trump's own family. His own judges. Right. I mean, <laughs> we, this, is, this has been confirmed time and time again. As we sit here almost two years since that election, there has still not been one shred of evidence presented to any court or law enforcement agency anywhere in the country that would indicate any problem of any significance whatsoever in the, in the conduct of the 2020 election. And that's really remarkable because as Major alluded to, we were in the middle of a global pandemic and we somehow managed the most voters that we've ever had, 20 million more voters than we've ever had, the highest percentage turnout that we've ever seen in a hundred years in the middle of a global pandemic as election officials were getting sick because they had to meet in person to plan it. We had more paper ballots than ever before. 95% of all people voted on paper, verifiable paper that we could go back to and recount and audit. And we did in fact audit. Every single voter in every battleground state voted on paper. That was for the first time that's ever happened. Georgia didn't have paper ballots in 2016. Most of Pennsylvania, most of North Carolina didn't have paper ballots in 2016. They did in 2020. We had more pre-election litigation that confirmed the rules Everyone knew the rules on election night. No one could complain about those rules because they knew them. They had been litigated. And in fact, Republicans won the vast majority of those cases, seven out of eight. And then we had more post-election litigation before, as you alluded to, at least eight Trump judges that confirmed the results of the election. Donald Trump himself could have requested statewide recounts in Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania and chose to request statewide recounts in none of those three states. And every single member of Congress who objected to the electoral count on January 6th, in the House at least, was elected on those very same paper ballots and were had conferred authority upon them by those very same paper ballots that they were objecting to. That's the affirmative, positive story of the 2020 election. What election officials achieved in 2020 was nothing short of a miracle, as Major said, and we should be celebrating it. And instead, they have been under an onslaught of attacks and threats and abuse since, uh, since that election. The big question then is whether correcting these misperceptions actually increases trust in elections. Have you found that to be the case as you, as you, because you walk through point by point dismantling some of the most commonly cited election issues, right? As you just did. We do play, just, we, just, we, we also do play whack-a-mole a little you, bit. You, I mean, we, right, you do, we, right. We, yeah. I mean, yeah. we're not going to play an endless game of whack-a-mole, but <laughs> right. we, we do take on some of those moles and whack them down. It's important to do that to an extent, right? To, mm -hmm. to establish the set of facts that are really undeniable. Right. The question is, as you alluded to earlier, so articulately mentioned earlier, this is psychic. Yeah. And so... I, I, I hate to sound um, cynical, but the question is really, what good does it do to take these points point by point and, uh, and show where they're wrong? What does it do for the psychic problem uh, that we're suffering from? Right. David and I are not national therapists. <laughs> <laughs> Speak for yourself. Uh, we are, <laughs> That's we, my we, next job. Right. We, we, we are not. Um, but as Michael Jordan observed, you miss every shot you don't take. So we really believed we had to write this book because there wasn't yet a place that took on this 
particular set of issues and is as exhaustively researched and as end noted and re-verified <laughs> as our book is, there are, will always be a great number of Trump books. I've written a Trump book, came out in 2018, called Mr. Trump's Wild Ride on the first two years of his administration. And I want to emphasize again that this is only a Trump book in the sense of what we have learned about the length, the depth, and the malevolence of his and his coterie of largely outside advisors were attempting a low-level coup. If there isn't even such a thing as a low-level coup, <laughs> probably not. But we we use in the yeah. we say in the book that's a word we don't use lightly. Yeah. Um. So it's not about those things as much as it is about the permanent truths. And I believe that there is a faddish quality to denialism. It's performative and faddish, and things that are performative and faddish exhaust themselves, I hope. <laughs> yeah. Um, and one of the things that helps in that exhaustion process is pushback that is rooted in things that actually can be verified and proven that have been tested in court, that have been tested in every relevant jurisdiction, much of which we summarize in the book. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, it's not wrong to be cynical about this. I have moments of cynicism about it myself. If you look at election denial over the course of the last two years and you look at what polls suggest, it appears to be extremely resilient against the truth. Um, and there is, amongst people I work with, colleagues that work in the election democracy space, there is an active kind of disagreement over what's the best tactic. Um, it, should we debunk every single claim or should we tell an affirmative story about the election? I come down firmly in the latter group, um, uh, but I'm very grateful for the people who've, who've been debunking claims. I think facts are important. Um, I rely upon them as a resource, but I think we have to tell a story. And that, that is, and, I, and I, I'd like to think this book is a contribution to that, that it's, 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 I hope, an important contribution. That's why we wrote it, to tell the story of what our neighbors, our fellow American citizens, some of whom we happen to disagree with on policy, by the way, and what we all accomplished. Because right now, those same Americans are suffering. Election officials are leaving their jobs. Um, the best case scenario for an election official is never fame and fortune. Their best case scenario is anonymity. Um, Wednesday after an election, you just hope no one's talking about you. Um, they do this because it's a calling. And we see large percentages of them uh, either leaving or very seriously considering leaving. And they are us. Um, they are the best of us. And what we hope is, and, and Major's exactly right, our, our book isn't a magic antidote for this by any means. Yeah. I'd love for it to be. Yeah. But, um, but we did try to draw readers in, even if they might be unhappy with the outcome of the election. We, we actually wrote it, if you read it, it it's, it's really addressed at those at those sincerely disappointed supporters of the former president to say, step back from the brink. You know, the, you, you can retain 
your disagreements with the Biden administration. You can retain your conservative philosophies or whatever philosophies. You can retain your grievances, but on this one thing, you're just you're you're not you're, you're not right on. Just to lighten it up, ever yeah. so briefly. Yeah. yeah, I'm glad you brought up neighbors because I want to go there. Just to lighten it up, yeah. ever so briefly, there was a period of time in our country, about five years, where most men wore a leisure suit. <laughs> by, by the way, I have not heard this one before, so I'm, I'm, I am as much on pins and needles as everyone else is. It was an unfortunate like the Sopranos? turn in this country where men in positions of power and not in positions of power wore leisure suits. They were made of polyester. They had vests. Go back and look at pictures of Congress in the late 1970s. They were accompanied with garish ties. They were often very big, and the collars were very wide. What color was yours? So I had one leisure suit. It was the first suit that my, my parents bought. It was baby blue, okay? A lot of things have come back from the 70s. Graphic designs. There are a couple of TV shows running on Netflix that, that touch back in the late 70s, early 80s. Some of the music has come back. Leisure suits will never come back, okay? So men can wear suits. They don't need to be made of polyester and they don't need to be lime green. That was a four or five year concentrated period of sartorial madness. Fads can end. Fads can be something you look back on like, how in the world did that ever happen? I have, just to light it up a little bit, <laughs> some hope. That we can get there. That this, <laughs> okay. that this spasm, the psychic spasm we're going through can be viewed 30 years from now, like the leisure suit of American politics. Ladies and gentlemen, we just had a deep, <laughs> deep look inside the brain of Major Garrett. I, I don't know if people realize this. This is something I haven't even gone that deep. Um, oh my God. That is, wow. If, if you didn't get a lime green leisure suit wearing Major Garrett um, walking down the streets in bell bottoms, Probably, <laughs> probably white patent leather shoes in your mind. Uh, I, you're dead inside. Whew. I think this is where we put the commercial break. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the points you make uh, a couple of times, going back to neighbors, is um, democracy requires participation. Quoting, we administer elections ourselves. We, ourselves, our families, our neighbors, our fellow citizens that it's our neighbors running the polling place in our neighborhood. My grandparents did this. They were poll workers and poll watchers, and we've had conversations about how uh, important poll watching actually is, um, despite some of the things that you're seeing about extremists now uh, using it as an intimidation tactic. But um, over the last decade, our geographic political segregation has increased. Um, the big sort, some people may know it as. Uh, last year, the New York Times reported that for one in five Republicans and two in five Democrats, less than a quarter of their neighbors belong to the opposite political party. Um, and I wonder how you think this sorting impacts our trust uh, in elections, especially trust in elections conducted outside our own neighborhoods. Oh, yeah. It's a huge issue. And that's a phenomenal book, The Big Sort. It yeah. really gets into this. And it predated all this. All yeah. of this. Yeah. All yeah. this, and, and no politicians directed this. We did this ourselves. This sorting process is something that we did to increase our own sense of familiarity and comfortability. And politicians have been reacting to it, not leading it. Uh, in the book, The Big Sort, 
there's a reference to the 1976 presidential election in San Francisco, where I believe the number is 46% of the electorate in San Francisco voted for Gerald Ford. 54% voted for Jimmy Carter. In the 2016 election, 9% voted for Donald Trump. So in a place like San Francisco, that is a statistically interesting part of this story, that it looks so similar as to make other things not like that look deeply dissimilar. That is part of all this psychic energy. And again, I'm not a national therapist, and I can't reorient America's real estate preferences. That is an enormously important an unsolvable part of this, but you don't need to deny an election to feel comfortable in your neighborhood. You can still feel comfortable in your neighborhood and understand that the neighbors who helped conduct your election are not out to get you. But, but and, and along those lines, that means San Francisco is still one out of every 10 voter is a Trump voting Republican. Um, in the many, many places across the country, polling places have to have members of both parties serving. Not every place, but in many places. The fact is, whether you agree with them or not, neighbor is not defined by whether or not you happen to agree with them politically. I mean, you might not agree with them on things that aren't political. I mean, you know, how well they're keeping up their, uh, their weeding in their lawn. Um, but just because you might disagree with them on some things does not mean that you're not their neighbor. That doesn't mean you have to learn to live with them. It doesn't mean that their security in your community is the same as your community in your community, your security in your community. And the fact that we now look on our own neighbors in our local areas with such suspicion to think that they might be part of a multi-million person conspiracy to subvert elections in this country and by the way, and that no one, none of them are talking about it, which is crazy. And then what you do see in the polling also is this, um, oh, well, that, you know, the other, the people in the other party in my community are fine, but I don't trust them in this other state. It was probably best typified by that um, insane lawsuit that the Texas attorney general brought in December of 2020 saying, um, we are going to ask the Supreme Court to sit in original jurisdiction as a trial court. Um, to say that not our states, but other states had bad rules for elections. And by the way, we've known about them for months, but we're going to ask about it in December. I mean, this is, now, first of all, we have to admit, I mean, can you imagine what those same attorneys general would say, would have said if, if the attorney generals of California, uh, Illinois, and Massachusetts had done the same thing in 2016, Ooh. right? They would have gone crazy. Um, but more importantly, we do see this in the polling, that there is a distrust of of others the farther you get away from them. So- People like their own lying member of Congress. They hate the other people's lying member of Congress, right? They, um, they uh, trust their own election officials often, although we have seen some weakening of that um, depending upon the nature of the state. But they don't trust pe- uh, election officials in other states. Um, that's that's going to be an ongoing problem. I mean, if, if, if you could actually claim, as some have, that Trump won California, you've probably untethered yourself a little bit to reality given the dynamics of California right now. Um, If similarly, you can't get around the fact that Trump won Pennsylvania by 44,000 votes in 2016 when it was a really close election and there were some weird dynamics going on and turnout was not that high. 
you, you probably just got to get used to the fact that there are some places where there are going to be close elections and we're in a 50, 50 country. And we, and, and to their credit, we've always had that, right? The candidates have always done that. Um, John Kerry didn't really consider challenging the 2004 election. There was no evidence the 2004 election wasn't secure. Um, it came down to one state. It was decided by about 120,000 votes, Ohio. Um, and Kerry did not support any of the challenges. And even the concern amongst Democrats about that election quickly faded. It was not led by anyone. It was not propelled by anyone. It did not turn into an ongoing money-making venture. That's the difference we have right now. So that, so that distrust of our neighbors is kind of um, a, it's kind of a symptom of, of this overall um, phenomenon. I want to get to where we go from here in a minute, but toward the end of the book, you write, um, this is the quote, right now, America's experiment at self-governing is as good as it has ever been. We are not talking about results. We know people are dissatisfied on the left and the right. We are talking about the process to achieve self-governing, the difficult and foundational work of administering elections themselves. Our elections are more secure, more transparent, more verifiable, and more accessible than ever before. We are and have been perfecting our democracy, extending not only the right to vote to Americans previously excluded, but seeing the fruits of that inclusion. And it's beautiful. Um, I just spoke with uh, a guy named Rob Sand, who's running for re-election and state auditor in Iowa. Uh, and one of the things we talked about was the frustration people have with politics as usual. Um, and so I, I'd love to hear a bit about how important it's going to be to separate um, the mechanism and machinery of casting ballots and counting ballots from the highly dysfunctional, hyper-partisan uh, state of electoral politics, hyper-anti-partisan, really. Mm-hmm. Because that's where we are. Now. Or negative partisan. Negative partisan. Yeah. Right. I mean, anti-partisan. It, that is the driving force mm-hmm. in turnout now. It um, is. And, and so I wonder um, if you think that can happen, how it happens. Um, you know, we, 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 we've, we've talked about the distinction already. I think that should be very clear to people. What I don't yet have a sense of is what it looks like. Like, help me visualize what it looks like when we begin as a people to start separating those two things again so, I mean, from, from where we are now. Um, when we talk about dissatisfaction with politics as usual, that's also pretty fungible. You know, what does that mean? What is politics as usual? And like most political junkies, I watch a fair number of political movies. And one of my favorites is Lincoln, which tells the story of how Lincoln led the charge legislatively to move the 13th amendment through Congress, particularly the House of Representatives. That's not a particularly pretty look at politics. Uniquely among most modern political movies, that movie shows that the hero is partially Lincoln, but it's also the political process, sometimes distasteful, sometimes a little on the ugly side. Nothing absolutely criminally corrupt, but patronage could be and was awarded. And people were persuaded or pressurized. And there were low-level, privately paid goons who tried to facilitate this ugly underbelly of politics to do something of greater and longer and more durable importance. Ladies and gentlemen, that is politics. That's actually politics as usual. 
there is a bit of rough edge to it, always, because human beings are not angels, again, referring to the Federalist Papers. They're not. They're venal creatures, tempted by all sorts of things. And moving along the daisy chain of human temptations is sometimes unpleasant and ugly. So politics as usual, just check yourself a little bit about on, on that. Point one. Point two, relative satisfaction is an indulgence of every democratic society. I am more pleased or less pleased. One of the periods of times that we're dealing with now, we have dealt with in another way before. Not the Civil War, not Vietnam, the Gilded Age. A massive transformation from agricultural to industrial economics. Time of intense disruption. It was also a time of great cultural and social sociological questioning, the first evidence of women asserting their rights and their voices. Our politics then was dominated by partisan press, a tremendous switching back and forth of congressional majorities, and presidential elections that varied back and forth because voters were looking for solidity in a time of deep disruption. Does any of that sound familiar? The digital age is as convulsive, I would argue, as the transition from agricultural to industrial. And we got through that period of time. We can get through this period of time. Disruptions are real. I'm not trying to talk people out of their sense of being dislodged and how primal politics feels in moments like that. It felt that way during the Gilded Age. People acted accordingly. Of course, the only people participating then were men. Women hadn't yet obtained the right to vote. African-Americans were not even included in the conversation. So we have a more diverse electorate, which is good. But we have more varied, therefore, opinions about all of this, which is also good, but creates its own sense of volatility. On this one, all those things are true, and we, David and I would never try to talk anyone out of any of the feelings they attach to that. All we ask them to do is remember the conference of authority, remember the means by which we do it, and hold that ground sacred. Yeah. I mean, I think that um, what this plays out as, if, if it works, if we, if we are able to yeah. dig ourselves out from this, is... There is, we move from where we are now, which is there are two possible explanations for a defeat. One, I lost the election. I've got to work harder next time. I've got to, maybe some of my positions were not what they wanted. Maybe they, maybe I was a good candidate and maybe the, you know, the, the conditions on the ground were just not conducive to my victory. Um, that's one possibility. Or um, I won but the system is rigged against me. We've got to reject that. I mean, I remember, you know, in 2012, um, the Romney-Obama race, and I worked closely with Bob Bauer, who was counsel to Obama in that race, and Ben Ginsburg, who was counsel to Romney in that race. And um, the, there were a lot of narratives that went around that race. We all remember the, was it the 47%, 46% that, that, um, that uh, Mitt Romney mentioned there were um, various classist and other um, narratives that went around. And Mitt Romney could have uh, adopted a, um, 
a narrative of grievance and theft if he had wanted to. It wouldn't have been true, but he could have. There was never any inkling of that. Um, I think back to John McCain's concession speech in 2008, which is still one of the great speeches of the 21st century, um, if not the greatest speech of the 21st century. Um, and they both, they both realized this is, we lost the election and now let's go win the next one. Mitt Romney actually had the RNC do a post-mortem to say, what do we need to do to win the next election? That is rational. It's actually even constructive. Even if you disagree with it, it's constructive. Um, there has been no post-mortem on the 2020 election, at least in any kind of reality-based world. Um, and that's not just bad for the country. I think we also have to recognize that's bad for the Republican Party. I mean, this country, and Major talks about this quite a bit as well, um, the Republican Party is one of our two great legacy parties. Our country is better when there are two robust, philosophically principled parties fighting it out in you know, the, the um, arena of ideas. Um, I fear we don't have that anymore. And that's bad for everybody. Um, it can affect policy. And sadly, that's not even the worst of it. The worst of it is it can ultimately undermine our entire system, our democratic system, because ultimately, right now, we have people in this country who are ready to turn to violence if they don't get outcomes they want. And we have to recognize that. That's happening. I don't think it's going to result in voters feeling unsafe at the polls, but it could manifest itself, especially post-election, when, when candidates who perceive they are losing the election rally their troops to, do, to, to, to engage in violence. Again, not hypothetical. That's literally what happened on January 6th. So um, I, th I think, um, you know, it takes, one of the things we really highlight in the book are there, although there were so many leaders of the, in, within the former president's party that were silent, there were many who spoke, not a majority, but there were many who spoke out. And I think elevating their voices is particularly important because it's not only in the, in the interest of the country for them to speak out, but also in the interests of their party to speak out. You know, I asked that question, uh, sort of helped me visualize what it looks like when we get beyond this, because um, for two reasons. One, um, it will never be as if it never happened. No. Right? We're never going to get to some place where, um, where, where it just fades into the distance and, and we move on as if... Uh, as if it had never happened, we'd never been through this period before. And so I ask that sort of to inform uh, where I want to close, which is, you know, what do we do? Where do we go from here? What do we do next? And I don't mean that in, in a sort of, you know, David, you and I have talked a lot about structural reforms. Um, we've talked about, we can talk about reforms all day long to democracy. There are plenty that should happen. Mm -hmm. um, and they're really good, smart, earnest people. Um, doing good work in that space to, to move the ball forward. I mean, at an individual level, people listening to us right now, I think everyone understands the stakes um, and everyone understands that we're, we're not going to get from here to healthy, uh, you know, by just jumping across the pond, you know, what does it look like and what do we do individually to, to move the needle forward? Where do we, where do we go next? So I have just one piece of advice on that, which is for anyone who's listening to my voice, um, I, I would 
almost on bended knee, make this suggestion, which will also come as a request. When you think about politics in our country and your relationship to it, spend more time focusing not on your level of satisfaction or dissatisfaction, but proportionally more time on the quality of your participation. That's it. Yeah. And we talk about, we, we talk about active citizenship in the book. I mean, it's kind of, I'm going to just build off that for a second and be more, um, more verbose. Um, <laughs> um, I, I think this starts with each of us looking inside ourselves um, because the seeds of this are in all of us. Um, we like to, we like to all point at the other side and say, those people are the worst. We're right. We're good. We could never do the things they're doing, but we know that's not the history of America. And in fact, the incentive structure might be such that it would only be smart to do what they're doing if that's all that's left. Um, I'll give an example. I was, uh, you know, recently the, um, uh, Justice Thomas put an administrative stay on the order that would require Lindsey Graham to testify in the Fulton County case. And my first reaction upon seeing that, I'm a lawyer, I've had cases go to the Supreme Court. I mean, I, I, I'm pretty well uh, versed in this stuff. My first reaction was to say, oh, for F's sake, you know, of course that's what happened. And, and, um, and just, just to go by instinct, um, and then I thought about it a little bit and I read some things up on it. And, and of course that was a very normal thing to do. He was basically, all he was basically saying is I don't want to decide this myself. I'm going to put a stay on this for a short period of time. So m- the entire court can review this. And in fact, Justice Kagan did the exact same thing a couple days later in another case. This is a very, very normal thing to do. And it hit me hard because I'm, I mean, I do this all the time. I think about this stuff all the time. And yet I was susceptible to that for, you know, hopefully just an instant, but I was susceptible to that. We all have that within us. We all are within media silos, whether we want to admit it or not. We've got to break out of those silos. We've got to be highly skeptical of media that would seem to validate our pre-existing positions. We've got to come with a sense of humility and um, hopefully even a sense of understanding for people with whom we might disagree, even disagree with pretty significantly on things that we think are core values. Um, you know, there are the 74 million people who voted for Trump. Some of them are hurting economically. A lot of them are hurting economically. And just saying that they're wrong isn't going to fix that for them. And we also can't hope, whether you're a conservative Republican or a liberal Democrat, we're not going to all magically become of the same party and agree with each other. We're going to have to learn to live with rational people who have a sense of citizenship with whom we disagree very, very fervently. And I think that starts with each of us ourselves. And only then can we expect it of others. And I think that's true across the political spectrum. I think we all need to do a little more work on that. And back to Major's point, how does that manifest itself and how we participate? Do we engage with people, you know, expecting the best of them? Do we vote in every election? Do we get involved? Do we volunteer to be poll workers? Um, you know, it's really hard when you're sitting at the table um, at, a, at a polling station and you see all of your neighbors walk in. It's hard to 
be angry at the ones with whom you disagree. It's a great moment. I've, with the Justice Department, I've probably been in 4,000 precincts around the country. <laughs> some of them were in the Deep South. Some of them were on the West Coast. Some of them in the North. Um, and 99.9999% of the time, it's an inspiring thing. It can be dull, yeah. <laughs> but, it can, but it's inspiring. You see people walking in, you see their neighbors greet them, you see them vote a ballot, you see them walk out. They're almost all experiencing something convenient and familiar and that makes them feel good about themselves. Why do people love the sticker? <laughs> people no, love a great that sticker. Question. They, they the do. Sticker. Everybody loves the it sticker. Is, it is a, that is a great insight into a very positive incentive structure. That nice. sticker has no value. We know actual real value, but it feels good to put it on. And remember the times you've gone to a polling place and you've seen with an adult a trundled child. Child's not voting. What's the parent doing? This is how we do things. Son, daughter. This is how we continue. It's a beautiful moment. It's a beautiful thing. It's a small M miracle. We should hold it closer. The book is The Big Truth. Major Garrett, David Becker, thank you for being here. This is wonderful, as always. Our pleasure. Thank, thank you, you very Ron. much for the time. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. If you haven't yet, we'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcasts app and give us a five-star rating and review over there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode. <laughs>